What did you find with those who you were counseling through this last year who were stuck at home with one another in uncommon situations? We have never seen the amount of work, which I thought, you know, I thought, well, people aren't going to have money for therapy because it's just, we're all hunkering down. And the wait list we have for couples in particular who COVID has just unraveled and put a spotlight on the parts that were already hard in their marriage. They have just amplified and rightly so. I mean, again, talk about postpartum, what happens when you're stuck at home um, with a newborn, not sleeping, not like what happens when everything is elevated. And so I, I think that that has busted down our doors. I mean, we can't, we can't see enough people as particularly couples who are just trying to navigate. What do I do that? I can't stand my spouse. And, you know, we've also seen domestic violence numbers increase and, and violence to children. So it's, it's not that I can't understand why it's rational to me. If it was already happening, you know, I understand when you put the heat on something, it it gets bigger um, which is again why we the first responders now are not just in the medical field, but then now they're in the psychological field. And then I think there is the church being asked, "What will you do with your couples? What will you do with your children, your homes, your families that are they're not well?" And this this has been really scary for them, and their marriages may not make it through this. Um, and and how do we tend to them when we're just trying to keep it together ourselves in our own homes? Wow, that's so significant. You mentioned uh, kindness and especially self-care, which I think is maybe at an all-time low because I I know sometimes even I personally think you don't deserve the time for self-care when we're in the middle of a crisis. What would be your kind of takeaways and wisdom for coping with where we're at in the year ahead? Scott, I'm so glad you asked me that. Because I feel like it's what I have realized in having children and in postpartum is that if I don't take care of me, if I don't get sleep, my brain doesn't know how to parent well. So it is unkind for me to expect something from my body after a sleepless night or after four sleepless nights. So what I'm going to expect from a society after a year of quarantine, what I'm going to expect from a marriage after a year of quarantine, again, yes, it's kindness and yes, it's self-care, but it's not just take a bubble bath self-care. It is, it's deeper than that. It's what is happening in you. And usually it's grief that we don't want to engage because it takes our energy. But I know when I take a 20 minute walk and I tell my partner, I need you to be on them. I'm going to take a 20 minute walk. And I, I usually end up crying somewhere on that 20 minute walk. And I would say for my husband, he goes on his, and, but that's what I match right after I say, okay, you go on your 20 minute walk. And he doesn't usually cry by the time he comes back. Maybe he does and doesn't tell me, but what I'm saying is there's something of, we have to figure out how to be a team. And as cheesy as teamwork makes the dream work sounds, there's something really, um, it's a very cheerleading kind of statement in our home because we are, 
we're in a world we've never survived yet. And so part of this is practice, or we look at it in my home as practice of how do we do, how do we run a marathon well? How do we do those last miles well, those middle miles well, when we just want to stop? We don't want to. And so we just have to tag team or else we're going to kill each other, honestly. Like there is, it's just that true. And most days, I'm not telling you like we do it perfect. Most days we're terrible at it, but we both are for each other. And we remind each other that this is unprecedented and it's, we understand the psychology behind it. Our brains are tired. Um, We're not getting sleep. We're not getting reprieve and a society that hasn't gotten reprieve for an entire year. Wow. Wow. We need to make sure we're sleeping. We need to make sure we're okay. We need to make sure our peace is somewhere in there. And, um, we have to hold on to that to then come to the hard work of running a daycare, being a stay-at-home mom and teacher, um, also working full-time and taking care of clients. Like there's just, it's a discipline. It's a discipline. Um, And I think for New Year's resolution, like there's a sense of my husband and I are trying to lose weight. And I think our resolution is even deeper than that is like, will we practice kindness and self-care and will we protect the other person's self-care because we don't know exactly how long till we're at the finish line and that's really scary when you can't even know how long you have like we have an idea maybe but we have to be extra kind when there's that dissonance like I don't know when it's going to fully end or if it will that's a very overwhelming thought yeah. That's so well said. And that's so comforting because I think um, a lot of times people just the the last person to receive care is self in so many yeah. situations, I feel like in, in this. And I've noticed that there are even those who we've interacted with that may not have been affected personally. They've not gotten sick. No one they know has gotten sick, right. but they carry almost this grief of, well, why haven't I been affected? Why I have a friend who lost the small business, but I didn't lose one. And so there's almost a, a guilt of not participating in a more traumatic um, response to what's going on. And uh, so I think that's such wise counsel for self-care and for looking forward in a, a, a marathon that doesn't have an end. Yeah. So and well I think, said. I mean, I, I love that it was well said. I feel like it's so scriptural, like love thy neighbors, you love yourself. And I pass over that. I'm an Enneagram too. The other is my bread and butter. Like I get something from giving myself away. And yet I've had to learn the practice of I'm actually giving them crumbs because I'm giving myself crumbs. And so I would just say, will we be valiant about how we care for ourselves so we can exponentially love our neighbor? Because you're right. We're not going to have a resilience or curiosity of what was it like to lose your small business? What was it like? We just don't, or what was it like to not get it? You know, we might just think, oh, you're lucky. I, I months, months ago, had to go and bury a, a family friend from COVID. So we've all, but we don't have curiosity to know the other story if we are so exhausted from, and, and if we're not self-aware, what's happening in me? What did 2020 bring up in my story? What did it trigger in me? My anger? my grief, my gratitude. I don't know for you. I don't know for each person because I don't actually know what 2020 was like for them. And so curiosity is what we need to have 
And when you're exhausted, no one's curious. When I'm tired, I am not curious about my children. I am not curious about my husband. Like, I'm just tired. Uh, Talking about like those who have not been touched directly, it feels to me like survivor syndrome for some people. You know, why did I walk away from the crash, you know, and, and I wasn't hurt or something like that, you know, and, yeah. and there's almost a missing out kind of thing, which is really weird. Um, I was wondering if I could, if I could ask the, um, the academic um, <laughs> side of you, uh, the student and also the teacher. Yeah. Uh, because it seems like there are going to be implications going uh, into the future for your area, you know, for, for psychology. Um, you know, the, the two examples that come right to mind are exactly what you're just talking about, the, the self-care, which has not been on a lot of people's radar. Mm-hmm. And when you brought it up before, it was like, well, that's really selfish, you know. Um, and now we understand it's basically survival, you know. Um, but another one is like the, that whole syndrome of, work is home and home is work Mm -hmm. the people who overworked Mm -hmm. and and like home was work for them you know Mm -hmm. because they really liked work and 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 then the other way around and now it's like people were forced into this and it's like this is not my choice i am stuck with this thing and you know so uh can you kind of talk about you know, if you were, if you were, let's say, okay, a couple of years in the future, all right, that we, we have the vaccine, you know, that it's not a direct threat anymore. There's still resilient, you know, still residuals. But um, if you're talking to students, you know, about this time, you know, and how psychology has changed, how psychotherapy has changed, mm-hmm. What can you imagine saying differently than you would have said a year ago? Sure. And I might set it up because I'm having to make a guess about the future, right? We don't have quantitative research showing us what the implications on the brain are. In fact, five years ago was probably when we started seeing our research on when 9-11 happened. And, you know, one of some of the research I worked on was what was happening in utero for women in their third trimesters who went through 9-11. So we don't actually completely understand, especially in neuropsychology, we can't, we have not kept up. We can't keep up with the brain. So we don't know the impact on the brain and we have, we have some research, but it's still, it's so wide open. So we are just five years ago getting research on effects from 9-11 trauma. And then 10 years ago, we're getting the effects of the first time a computer was in the living room and pornography was brought into the home and the effects on the brain and how that's affected sexual development. You know, I could go back to the depression. My grandmother who rubber bands everything together and she keeps everything so um, frugal and tidy because she lives through the depression. So we don't know what we will look like as survivors of 2020. We don't know yet what will be said of us and how we'll bounce back, but you're right. There is a survival there that's, that's happened. And we don't know from this trauma and from this trauma bond, what our culture will look like. 
But we do know that this will go in the history books. We do know that people will reference as, oh, you went through the pandemic. You went through 2020. And the effects of how we live will be noted. But you're right. I think it will take years of of research to know right now so much of our research is just getting a vaccine. It's on blood type. It's on trying to figure out how to help people's lungs get through this virus. So we've put all our energies to that and we're exhausted and psychologists are overworked. So I'm not expecting neuroscience and research coming anytime soon. But my guess is what will the body respond to when it's back in person and when there is touch and when there is connection and intimacy I do think there's a similarity. We see research of when someone comes off the mission field, they had the high of being in another country. They had the high of another language. Their brain would light up in so many places. And then they come back to um, the culture they knew. And there's a bit of dissonance. There's a bit of you want another hit. You want another high. Soldiers, the same way. They get motorcycles when they come home. And they're like, we want that hit in our brain to feel the rush, even if it's fear, to feel the rush that made us feel alive. I imagine that's going to happen with intimacy is either we're going to look to something else that feels a rush of intimacy and touch. And I don't know how that'll look for the couple who has been in the home or the, you know, career person who has now been stuck in their home. But I imagine, I'm curious that it's going to be about pushing the boundaries to feel a hit with intimacy. Mm. I, mean, I can't prove that, but that's what I'm looking for. And I imagine people are going to want to be in person. They're going to want to feel again, the threat of something to feel mm. alive. Mm. So that could go either way, right? That could be a very positive thing or a very negative thing. Again, yes. And, and it, could, it could look very different in each person because like you said, some people feel like they missed out on the trauma of 2020. And they just lost out on it. And some people feel like they were wrecked by it. Mm-hmm. So what their body's going to ask for to feel cared for or feel connected to, I, yeah. we don't know, honestly. Um, and, and as you say, there could be a time of suppression, a, a lengthy time of suppression, and, and things only come out much later. My grandmother was born in 1879, went through the the Spanish flu pandemic. Yes. Um, she lived with us for uh, 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. Um, she lived to be 109. Okay. So this is a long time and, and a long-term relationship. She's been gone, you know, for a while, but I just found out from my mother that she lost her first husband. First husband? I didn't know actually that that was a term in that pandemic. Wow. And I was just like, where was that the whole time, you know? And I can see it's just kind of, well, you know, let's just put that away because that was really, really hard, you know, and and let's just move on with life, you know? So I get that. Yeah. The, the silent deaths. That's so interesting that you put it that way. And it's really, it's really brilliant. There have been a million, over a million silent deaths this past year, whether that's the death of not seeing someone, whether that's the death of, you know, the physical death of someone. 
our hopes dying, our dreams dying, our workplace dying, there have been millions of silent deaths. And I do wonder if it won't be a hundred years until we know mm. all of those deaths. Yeah. I, I don't know that we won't. I mean, there's so many stories to be heard. So that's where therapists have and pastors have their jobs and communities have their jobs cut out for them. Because right. we are called to be listeners of the other with whatever trauma they held in the last year. Yeah. And so much of us just want to be heard. We don't have any room to be curious and listen well. And yet yeah. I think that's our work that's cut out for us. And Scott, you know, you have been a pastor. I know you have a pastor's heart. What's your response? Yeah, I think that's the toughest thing because um, I've noticed with, in some of our Christian circles, there's such this divide that, was mentioned earlier, some ministries trying to force people together, you know, we've got faith and we don't need masks and this kind of thing. And so people who felt betrayed by their church and said, well, you're not listening to me. I don't feel comfortable coming. Mm -hmm. And um, I I really think that just as, as Christy said, that there's this movement toward uh, sort of a micro church model, house churches have become uh, a big thing. And uh, I'm wondering if there will be, if people experience what was more akin to the first century church in homes and say, we've never experienced this before in a larger setting, and maybe it hangs around a little bit, and uh, maybe there's a decentralizing of the institution of church into home and family again, where instead of going to a church building and every member of the family breaking off into their own little niche ministries. Everybody stays together and there's a growth as a family once again. And I think there can be positive changes, but mm-hmm. the, the trauma of it is so true. I don't know how long lived it might be. It's funny. You mentioned um, uh, about a first husband that you never knew about in your family. I asked my grandmother when all this started, um, when my bird clock is going off. This is okay. terrible. This is such an offense to the podcast world. I have to edit out the birds. Oh uh, no. It's it's half past the scarlet tanager. So <laughs> uh the my grandmother mentioned that she lost uncles and um aunts and and she was born just after the Spanish flu but she remembers growing up in a world where everyone was so fearful of what had just come through. And there were people in her family that she never met because of that. And so, you know, in ministry with family dynamics and funerals that were not allowed to be attended to and weddings that happened that families weren't allowed to be a part of, um, I wonder how much that will all, what will have to occur to sort of make up for all of that. Yeah. Scott, it's so interesting you say that, too, because it makes me think of epiphany, like the after. What happens after, you know, even coming upon epiphany right now? I I think about the church in the church calendar sometimes. And so what happens when the Magi, after years, finds the Savior, right? They've rationed their food. They didn't know when they'd actually find him. And, you know, you can imagine those last meals together when they actually know they're going to come upon the Savior, that they that they found him. And it's interesting to think about us as a society and as a church, 
How will we live? Because once you find the Savior, now he has a whole entire life that goes to crucifixion. It's not, you know, it's um, it's like being in the upper room after the crucifixion. Like there's just these weights of what do we as followers of Christ? How do we live after trauma? How do we live with the threat of it happening again? Once we actually find the Savior, we're not done. We're still waiting for heaven. And so it's interesting to think about, you know, the Spanish flu and this, you know, person feeling the weight of that of that grief and that trauma and that fear. And I wonder if it's not an invitation, how will we live after we've known death, you know, and after we've known the not yet, but we've, you know, we've come to a new year, we will find a vaccine, we, you know, we will survive. And what do we do after that? Because that, that potential for loss of hope is very, very evident to me in this moment and so anyway I was just thinking like oh because it's epiphany we have an epiphany dinner I'm always telling the children like they hadn't found Christ yet like these they were you know the magi were searching for him forever they were traveling and they were you know at the end they didn't the feast of the magi is because they finally found the savior but then we go into 33 more years and then a crucifixion, like it, there's something so crazy about this ask as believers. And I just wonder how will we as believers respond to the ask of the present day, of the pandemic, of the, the we know the stench of death and there is still hope and we are moving towards something. And so how do we thrive in this calling that is not safe, but it is good? Well, and also, how did the wise men feel with basically death in their wake? You know, they leave, and then all of these children are killed, you know. Um, And and I have, you know, I have to also think about my grandmother again. Uh, And not to be a downer, I I really want to be an optimist. I want to be hopeful in all of this. But she went from the Spanish flu to the Depression, to world war two you know and she had already been through world war one um and so you know i i want to say it's 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 uphill from here you know and it'll be it'll be but who knows i mean my goodness um i i will say though no doubt there is a resilience uh in this generation that you know didn't exist really before and and we can talk about 9-11 you know, psychologically, yeah, but in terms of direct impact, mm-hmm. you know, nothing like this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, nothing like the pandemic. Um, so, I mean, you know, I'm grateful for that. Honestly, I'm grateful for that, uh, for yeah. all of the generation that are having to, to, to have that built up in them. Uh, but, you know, I, I pray, I just pray when we're not having it built up in us in order to, you know, go through something even more challenging, you know? Um, Yeah. So again, not to be a downer. Well, I think if we read the Bible, you know, those guys are a downer because I don't want any of the lives of the popular people in the Bible. They were full of suffering. So where, what part do we want to play? Like in the, in the story, I think we're invited to play any part, but they're costly parts. 
And our hope has to be found as something deeper than our physical breath. So that's just, I mean, we're talking a real sermon right there. That That's a real calling. That's a real challenge. And I, I am not afraid. And I, I think this is, again, innate in women. We know how to birth life and we know how to birth death because our bodies understand what it means to co-create. And I, I only say that to pivot just a small bit of there, there is the wake of death. There is, like you said, I mean, I had forgotten about all the children that were killed after that moment. And so what do you do with that devastation of death? Well, the only way death cannot mock us is if we participate. So as we choose to participate in 2021, as we choose to participate in the calling as followers of Christ, even as educators and as students, if we participate in learning, then we are saying there's something bigger than us that we are going after. Um, it was interesting in my PhD class, the, um, in my doctorate, one of the women had survived cancer twice. And I thought, and she actually was going through it for a third time and she's going through chemo and mm-hmm. she's sitting in class. And I thought I would be on a beach. I would not be getting a degree. What is the point? But she had a hope that was a very mystifying to me. She wasn't giving up on life. Even though she didn't know how long her physical life was going to be, she was very hungry and thirsty to, to be in, in her life. Mm-hmm. And I was so inspired by that. And I would hope that we as a society step into our resilience. I, don't, I would call it thriving. I think what we come out of survival is will we choose to thrive. It's scary. It's dangerous. But I, that's how I want to be found living. Because I was just very aware of death last year, uh, last month, yesterday. So I, I want to be found living um, no matter what that cost looks like. I, I will be found thriving in, even in the midst of trauma and survival. That's awesome. Yeah, great word. We appreciate that. Um, Scott, you have anything else? I do not, other than the fact that I have taken so many notes today because it is always so awesome talking with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah, I think you. our listeners will find it very encouraging. Yes, yeah. And, no. and I, I personally find it very encouraging, Christy, um, the hope that you continue to have mm-hmm. uh, because you hear and see a lot. And in uh, a lot more than most of us do, and mm-hmm. um, and you've always talked about how kind God is, um, and and it you know honestly, I can look at you and I can say, literally, if she can do it, I can do it, mm-hmm. uh, and and that's mm-hmm. very very helpful for me. Um, oh. I want you to know that. Thank you, Paul. Uh, so we just always, always love talking to you. And oh. definitely be talking about your new book. No question about that. Thank um, you. Well, I was delighted um, when you reached out. And I, I want to bless you both for what you do and how you are bringing words and bringing hope and bringing truth. And that's costly that you're caring for so many amidst probably your own exhaustion, both of you. And so I bless you for the work you continue to do, the good, good work. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for being with us once again. Uh, and we just pray that you will stay safe and stay well. Thanks for listening to Moments That Matter, a podcast that looks at the moments in our lives that come along from time to time that have consequences long after the moment, especially those moments that have to do with the choice of vocation. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation, Parker Palmer speaks of a clearness committee in the Quaker tradition, wherein a group of older, wiser people ask questions of someone considering a life choice as a way of clarifying the next step. We may not meet with a committee about these big decisions, but we all have these critical junctures in our lives, which we can think of as clearness committee moments. We need to pay attention to these moments because they are profound and potentially life-altering. We'll relay stories from our lives and interview others about theirs, especially noting the clearness committee moments, those we choose to recognize and those that were sadly ignored, those decisions that were made with God in mind and those that were not. Our hope is that these podcasts will cause you to think of the same kind of moments in your life with new clarity.